Um, I don't know if anybody else feels like this, like, hurry up, it's Christmas! Like, everything feels so frantic. You feel frantic? <sighs> I do. I feel a little bit that way this morning, even, even thinking about what the week looks like, even what the week looks like for our church. For this morning, for Christmas Eve, for our life groups, for invitations, for all these things that we're doing. It's like, oh, please give to this or help us with that or hurry up and enjoy it because it's going to be over by the end of this week. And I just want to say for now, everyone just take a collective breath for the next, oh, you actually did it, okay. (laughs) For the next few minutes, let's just relax for a minute and let's kind of set our minds on the things that are important. So Merry Christmas And you can say that, yeah. (laughs) Merry Christmas. This is an incredible time of year. And whether you're here as a regular attender or whether you're here visiting with us, maybe even for the first time this morning, I just want to say Merry Christmas. We're glad you're here. We're glad you're here with us. We have some special guests this morning that are with us that aren't always with us. So if you teach or help in our children's ministry classrooms... Would you just stand up for a moment? Teachers, helpers, teen teachers, stand up for a minute. Okay. I just want to say thank you to you. We we wanted to give a break to all of our regular teachers and helpers this morning so that they could be with us in the service this morning because those people that just stood up, at least a couple times a month, they're not in here with you. They're in there ministering to our kids, playing with them, teaching them God's word, and so we're just glad to have you here with us this morning and to celebrate with you, and we're grateful to those who are in there this morning with our kids so that you can be here with us. There are way too many people to thank that do way too many things for us as a church so that we can be here on Sunday mornings and worship God, but that's what we're here for this morning, and this morning we're continuing our our Christmas series. This is the the fourth and final week of our Christmas series, God With Us, where we've been looking at, through the first few chapters of Luke, at how people respond to the entrance of the Savior. How do people respond when Jesus shows up on the scene? And if you remember that first week, we looked at Mary's response. Mary's response of praise and thanksgiving for what God was doing in and through her, despite how difficult that was, and despite the cost of what God was doing in her life. And then we looked at Zechariah's response of first total disbelief and then praise for what God was doing, that God was sending his Savior that he had been waiting for, the light breaking into the darkness. Then last week we looked at the shepherds and the angels and Mary and how they responded to the Savior. The angels praising God and proclaiming the arrival of the king into the world, the shepherds worshiping the little king, and Mary treasuring all of these things and putting them away, storing them away to remember what God was doing. And then this morning, we're going to look at Simeon and Anna, two people who we often overlook in the Christmas narrative. Their response to Jesus, how do they respond to the Savior entering into the world, to God with us. 
And we're going to look at that this morning and we're going to continue to ask the question, what does it look like when God shows up? And how do people respond? And how should we respond? In the week of Christmas, as Christmas draws near, how do we respond to the fact that God showed up in a baby king at Christmas time? So before we open the word this morning, as we take our collective breath, would you just pray with me this morning before we open God's word? Father, we're so grateful to be here this morning and so thankful for so many things. And yet we're so busy with so many things. And so this morning I pray that as we look into your word, we would be reminded of why we celebrate. We'd be reminded of why it's so busy. And Lord, that you would allow us to take a breath and to look into your word and to celebrate you. We thank you for the opportunity to be here this morning and we just pray that you would speak to us through your word this morning. We pray this in the name of your Son. Amen. So if you would turn with me to Luke chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible here this morning, we have some for you. They're in the baskets next to you. If you raise your hand, someone will just pass one down to you. If that feels too awkward, just look over the shoulder of someone next to you or you can just listen along. That's fine. What I want to point out is that if you don't have a copy of God's Word or you would like ours, you're welcome to take that home with you. That's our gift to you. We're going to be in Luke chapter 2. If you're using our Bible, that's toward the end, page 857 is going to be the page number for you. Luke chapter 2, we're going to be starting in, Luke tw in verse 22, but let me paint the picture really quick of where we are. Let me just set the scene so that you understand what we're going to look at this morning, because if I say we're going to celebrate Christmas by talking about the story of Simeon and Anna... There are a number of you that have no idea what we're going to be talking about this morning, and that's fair. They're often overlooked in the narrative of Christmas. And so if you remember, Mary and Joseph have gone to Bethlehem for the census. Jesus is born there in the stable, in the manger. We know that story. And then eight days later, according to the Jewish custom, he's circumcised and he's named Jesus. And then there's a, a purification and a dedication process that needs to happen. And so Mary and Joseph then need to take their baby from Bethlehem to Jerusalem to dedicate Jesus at the temple. And that's kind of where we pick up this morning. This is after what we think of as the Christmas story, that narrative. Now they're traveling with their one-month-old baby to Jerusalem, to the temple. And starting in verse 22 of Luke chapter 2, it says this, and when the time came for their purification, according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord, and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. And we'll stop there. So they're making their way to the temple. Jesus is just over a month old. He's 40 days old when he's dedicated at the temple. And if you've had or seen a one-month-old, you get a picture of what that means. He is very dependent. They're going to the temple to dedicate Jesus and to go through the process of purification for both Mary and Joseph. And we won't get into all of that, but what we will say is if you look in the Old Testament, the traditional sacrifice for that would be a lamb and a dove or a lamb and a pigeon. But there's an accommodation made for those who can't afford that. It's two doves or two pigeons. 
Why do I bring that up? I just, Luke, the author of this, is continually reminding us of the situation of Mary and Joseph. Mary and Joseph are a two-pigeon family. That's like Bible for living paycheck to paycheck. And you can use that later if someone's asking you for something. You're like, man, I'm sorry, we're a two-pigeon family. We just don't have the resource. This is the family that God chooses to give his, his son to, a young, poor couple who is faithful to him, following the law of the Lord, obeying him through very difficult things. But this is a two-pigeon family. They don't have a lot of resource. And so they come to the temple to offer a sacrifice to dedicate Jesus as the firstborn. It's kind of an inauspicious beginning for the Savior of the world, don't you think? And Luke continues to remind us of his humble beginnings. But this is the part of the narrative where we get to Simeon. And this is where we're going to spend the bulk of our time this morning is with Simeon. So look with me. In verse 25, it says, Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. If we look at just that verse, what do we know about Simeon? We know he's from Jerusalem. We know his name is Simeon. What else do we know? He's righteous and devout. Here is a devoted follower of God. He's described very much the same way that Zechariah was described. This is an older man who has followed the Lord all his life. He's a devoted follower. He's obedient to the Lord. And it says he's filled with the Holy Spirit and he's waiting for the consolation of Israel. He's waiting for Israel to be rescued. He's waiting for the comforter, for the Savior, for the Messiah. We refer to that a lot. But this is the Messiah that was predicted 700 years ago, prophesied 700 years ago in the book of Isaiah. And so they've been waiting a long time. And it gives some new context, I think, to the video that we watched this morning and to that hymn, Come Thou Long Expected Jesus. And I don't know if we have a context for what that means until you look at the history, all of Scripture, waiting for Jesus, Israel crying out for a Savior, someone to rescue them. And so Simeon is someone who has been waiting. And you would think after 700 years, people would stop waiting with such expectancy. And most people have. But Simeon has a reason to wait with expectancy. Look at the next verse. 26, And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. I want you to think about that for a minute because it's easy to just read over that. We understand why Simeon is waiting expectantly for the Messiah because God has promised him that he will not die before he sees him. Now think about that for a minute. What if God were to tell you, before you die, Jesus will return? It will happen before you die. How would that change your life? How would that change what you think of when you wake up in the morning? Before I die, Jesus is coming back. That could happen right now. That could happen today. And then you would start to think, what will it look like? What will it be like when he comes? And how will I know? How will I know, what it, how will I know that it's him? Wouldn't that change everything? Incidentally, that's how we ought to live. We ought to live in expectation of the return of Christ. 
And that ought to fill us with joy or fear, respectively, depending on what we anticipate will happen when Christ returns. But can you see how that changes things for Simeon? This is the life that he's lived, and now he's old. So now it's like imminent. It's going to happen, and it's going to happen soon. And he's waiting to see the Messiah. Verse 27, And he came in the Spirit into the temple, And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, that means they're going to dedicate him, he took him up in his arms and blessed God. Let me point something out to you. If you look through those last few verses, look at the role of the Holy Spirit in the life of Simeon. It says he's filled with the Spirit. It says the Spirit has revealed this truth to him that you will not die before you see God's Savior, God's rescuer, his Messiah. And then the Spirit directs him to the temple A lot of people just believe that Simeon is a priest, but doesn't say that Simeon's a priest. Just says that Simeon goes to the temple as the Spirit directs him when Jesus is going to be there. So he's filled with the Spirit. The Spirit has revealed this truth to him. The Spirit directs him to the temple, and then somehow he recognizes Jesus as the Messiah. Have you ever thought about that? If you know this story, how does Simeon know that Jesus is the Messiah? He's a 40-day-old baby. Doesn't that seem impossible? See the role that the Spirit is playing. The Spirit has revealed that to him. And he picks up the baby, Jesus, and he blesses God. And here's what he says. Verse 29, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you've prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. You hear what he says? Thank you, Lord, now I can die in peace. It happened just like you said it was going to happen, just like you promised, Lord, and now I can die. <laughs> Isn't that a strange prayer of blessing? But he's been waiting his whole life, and now he's seen that God's promised Messiah has come. Our rescuer has come, just as he promised. And he says, verse 30, for my eyes have seen your salvation that you've prepared in the presence of all the people. He said, my eyes have seen your rescuer. He's talking about Jesus. What's lost in this for us is that we associate Jesus with the Savior, but in this story, he's talking about a baby. He's picked up a baby and said, my eyes have seen the salvation of God, and the salvation of God is now visible to everyone. God's rescuer has arms and legs And maybe even that weird belly button thing that hasn't gone away yet that babies have. He's here, physically here, as a man. Isn't that crazy? And he's waited a long time for this. And he says, not only are those things true, but this is what the Savior means. The Savior will be a light to the Gentiles. The Gentiles meaning the people that are not a part of God's chosen people, not a part of Israel. This is going to be available to everyone, he says. And he uses the same wording that Zechariah used. Do you remember what Zechariah said? Zechariah said he's going to be a light that breaks into the darkness. And Simeon uses the same language. He is the light to the Gentiles, and he will be the rescuer of Israel. He will bring about the glory of Israel. They've waited a long time for this. And then, verse 33, And his father and mother, Jesus' father and mother, marveled at what was said about him. Think about this for a minute. 
If you're Joseph and Mary, you've already had a pretty interesting year. An angel shows up to each of you, says you're going to have a baby. That baby is going to be um, conceived by the Holy Spirit. Okay. And then you're gonna, your son is going to be the one that's been foretold, the one that's been prophesied. 700 years ago in the book of Isaiah, that's going to be the baby that you have. Okay. And he's going to be, we see him then born in a feeding trough, basically, worshipped by people they've never met before. They don't even know how these shepherds know about their son until they probably tell them their story. It has been a pretty surreal year for Joseph and Mary. Then in obedience, they go to the temple to dedicate Jesus, and this old man comes up and grabs their son and blesses God with this blessing, saying, I have seen the Savior of the world. I have seen God's Messiah. And we see the response of Joseph and Mary. They're they're in awe of this. Because what we lose in this is we just think like Joseph and Mary are totally cool with everything that's going on. And they are in the sense that they're completely obedient and given to God and said, do with us what you will. We're your obedient servant. But it doesn't mean they understand it. They don't understand it. It says they're marveling and they're storing all these things away in their heart and they're treasuring these things, but it doesn't mean they get what's happening. Even now we see they don't fully understand who Jesus is. And even later when he's a young man, when he's 12, and he's teaching people in the temple, they're in awe of him because they don't understand the weight of glory that is in their arms is the Son of God. And so their response to this is to marvel. And then verse 34, Simeon turns his attention to them and said to it says, And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. So Simeon first blesses God, and then he turns his attention to Mary and Joseph, and he gives them this prophecy about their son. And he says, this baby is the one that will cause many to fall and to rise. See, when we say Jesus, we all say, yes, that makes sense. Yes, Jesus is the one around whom many will fall and rise, but remember where they are. He's holding their infant son, and he says, this baby will cause many to fall and rise. And he's kind of referring back to this prophecy in Isaiah that we saw most recently. It's it's quoted all through the New Testament. We saw it most recently in Acts chapter 4. It says this, For Jesus is the one referred to in the scriptures where it says, The stone that you builders rejected has now become the cornerstone. There is salvation in no one else. God has given no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. Simeon's words are reflecting the same sentiment. Either Jesus will be your savior or he will be rejected. He's saying either this baby is going to be the thing that you base your whole life on. He's going to be the cornerstone, the thing that everything centers around, or you're going to reject him. And he's going to be the rise and the fall of many people who are either going to build themselves on that foundation or they're going to trip over it. And he says... This baby is a sign from God that will meet with opposition. He says a sign that is to be opposed. Jesus will be opposed both during his earthly 
ministry, and even after. And we don't have to look very far to see that. Because the option is there, either he's Savior or we reject him. Either we accept or reject who Jesus is. Either we submit to his lordship or we don't. We don't have a third option. And that's what Simeon is saying here. You don't have another option of what you do with Jesus. Jesus is the test that reveals the heart. He says at the end of that, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. We don't have to look very far now to see opposition to Jesus. It was there during his time, enough that he was beaten and crucified for what he said and who he claimed to be. But we don't have to look very far now to see it. Because Jesus is viewed as exclusive and intolerant, and that's offensive. It just is, the claims of Jesus. Because Jesus claims exclusivity. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and nobody comes to the Father except through me. He claims it. The part that we don't talk about is the part that says, while it's true that access to God is granted exclusively through the person of Jesus, that access to God is granted to everyone who wants it. Because John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. Do you catch the difference? Access to God is granted exclusively through Jesus. That doesn't mean it's exclusive. It's offered to everyone freely. Jesus is viewed as intolerant because he wants us to accept him at face value. And we really struggle with that. We want to pick and choose what parts of Jesus we like and what parts of Jesus we don't like. And we'd like to remove the parts that we're a little bit uncomfortable with. We want to Subway sandwich Jesus. I want to say, well, I'll take Old Testament, but not literally, because some of that stuff is pretty wacky. So I'll take that, and I'll definitely take the grace and the mercy and the love of Jesus, and I'll take the fruit of the Spirit. But I don't know that I can take the Bible as God's inerrant word, because that has implications. And I definitely want to include all the other religions because my Jesus doesn't want to offend anyone and my Jesus doesn't want to hurt anybody's feelings. So we want a made-to-order Jesus. And that's not what we're offered. C.S. Lewis puts this better than, than I can, certainly. And um, many of you will be familiar with this quote from the book Mere Christianity. But when he puts this option out where we want to create a different Jesus, where we want to claim things about Jesus that aren't true. Here's what C.S. Lewis says. He says, I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on a level with a man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He's not left that open to us, he did not intend to. Simeon says, 
This baby will cause many to rise and fall. This baby will meet with opposition. This baby is going to be the thing that makes or breaks people and exposes men's heart. That's what Jesus means. There's not another option. You have to decide what you'll do with the person of Jesus. And that's what Simeon is saying. There's one other thing that he says here, parenthetically, at least in my Bible, to Mary. He says, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also. So he says all these things about Jesus and what he's going to mean. And then he just slips this thing into Mary saying, and a sword will pierce through your own soul. How do you prepare a new mom to witness the rejection of her son? How do you prepare a new mom to witness the beating and crucifixion of her son? How do you prepare a mom to watch what Mary is going to have to watch as a mother in her lifetime? When Joe says Christmas leads us to Easter, when Christmas points us to the cross, it has to. And even in the narrative of Christmas and in the joy of a Savior entering in the world, we have to understand why he came. And I feel like what Simeon is saying here is, Mary, I know that this has been hard. He doesn't even understand the context of all of this. It's like, Mary, I know this has been hard. You don't even understand how hard it's going to get. This will cut you to your very soul. And you need to prepare yourself for what this is going to be like. Because this is hard. Verse 36. Sorry, I closed my Bible. Verse 36, this is the, uh, the bookend to the story. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel, of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. So here's Anna. She was married for seven years before her husband died, and then she has just been a devoted, faithful follower of God ever since, and she spends all of her time at the temple, fasting, praying, and praising God. That's what her life looks like. It's been a hard life, and it says she's advanced in years. Remember what we said that means? She's old. And verse 38 says, And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. Do you see this? So it just happens by coincidence that this woman who's been waiting and praying for the redemption of Israel happens upon Jesus and Simeon and Mary and Joseph at that same time. Isn't that cool? That God would do that? That just like Simeon, she gets to be there. That just like Simeon, she praises God. And then her response is not only to praise God that he has sent a rescuer, but then to tell anyone who's been waiting that he's here. And I just, I have this note here that says, exhort old people. I want to tell you what I mean by that, because that probably sounds offensive. (laughs) Do you recognize what God is doing in this story? And do you recognize who he's doing it through? If you're older or you consider yourself old, I don't ever want to hear you say, God's done with me. And God can't use me anymore. And God's finished using me. God's finished using you when you're with him. And until then, God is going to use you. Do you see what Simeon and Anna are doing? These are people who have lived faithful lives for the Lord 
and are modeling an attitude of expectancy for God to act and to move and praise for God for what he does and who he is. Isn't that cool? And all of these people who are blessed by that, and I think of Joseph and Mary, Mary who's probably 15 or 16 years old, and these people with this rich faith and history with God, praising God and blessing them and pouring into their lives. That's the church. And so if you're older and you think God's done with you, he's not. He's not done with you until you're with him. The devoted followers of God have been waiting for a long time for God to show up, and now he's here. And so Simeon and Anna praise God for sending the rescuer, and Joseph and Mary marvel at what God is doing because they can't believe it. We've spent the last four weeks looking at how people respond when God shows up. We've spent the last four weeks talking about what do we do with Jesus? What do we do when Jesus shows up? And that's the question that I would ask you this morning. I think that's the takeaway here. Who do we say that Jesus is and what do we do with that? The Bible tells us very plainly who he is, the Son of God, the gift of Christmas. So as we take our collective breath and we think about Christmas... That has to be what comes to mind. The gift of Christmas is that God loved us so much that he gave his son. He gave his son to live the perfect life that we can't live. He gave his son to die the death that we were supposed to die. And then he raised that son back to life to demonstrate his power over sin and death and say, and invite us into that life with him. And say, I offer you a place in my family, in God's family. And at Christmas, we celebrate the fact that God loved us so much that he would give that gift, his son, to this poor family and say, my son will come and he'll die for you because that's how much I love you. That's the gospel. That's the good news. And when we talk about what will we do with Jesus, that's the question. What will I do with that truth? Because it's true. And there will be a point when we stand before God and he will say, what did you do with my invitation? What did you do? There are some of you here who are actively submitting your life to the lordship of Jesus Christ. And you've said, this is the cornerstone around which I will build my whole life. And it will be the center of gravity for everything that I do. And I say, praise God for that. And if you know him and if you love him, that's what you want to be true about your life. But that's hard to do. It's hard to maintain that. And that's what the church is about. That's why we come together. That's why we push you to join a group of people, a life group, to say, be with other people who love the Lord and help each other do this well because it's hard to do on your own. God doesn't promise that it's going to be easy. You can just ask Mary. She'll tell you. What does it look like to follow God and to build your life on him and have everything centered around him? It's not easy but it's worth it. That's what God says at Christmas. I love you so much. Come and be a part of my family. I invite you in. There's some of us who have heard that and we know that and we want that to be true, but our life doesn't look like that. It just doesn't. And I would just say I'm glad you're here because that's what this is supposed to be. 
that we would come together and we would put that good news, that gospel in front of each other and say, remember this. Remember that this is true. And what are you not believing about the gospel right now? If you're not living in expectation of the return of Jesus, then what is it that you don't believe about the gospel? Because it's true. And he came. And he loves you. And he wants to be with you. And he wants to be the thing that you build your life on. Because the alternative is that we reject him. And that when we see God someday, and we all will, he's going to ask, what did you do with my offer, with my invitation, with the gift that I sent you at Christmas? And we have to have an answer for that. We're really good at asking people who don't know Jesus that question. What would you say to God if you met him right now? That's a legitimate question. We don't ask each other that very much. And I think sometimes for the followers of Jesus, somebody has to ask us that question. What are you going to say to God when you meet him? Does your life look like him at all? Have you built your life on that cornerstone? Is he your center of gravity at all? Or have you just picked him up along the way and like, yeah, I'll take some Jesus. That sounds good. And I'll try and live a good life and I'll try to... That's not the gospel. The message of the gospel is not that you have to earn your salvation. The message of the gospel is it's already earned. It's already paid for. The message of the gospel is not that you have to clean yourself up and make yourself presentable to God. The message of the gospel is you're clean. Because of the work of Christ on the cross, you can stand before God blameless because he sees his son. The message of the gospel is not that you have to make yourself worthy of God's love. The message of the gospel is you're not worthy of God's love and he loves you anyway. And there's nothing you can do to change it. He loves you, no matter what. And Christmas is the time when we remember how much he loves us. You have your connection card this morning. I'd like to ask you to pull that out. I would love if you would share with us a prayer request or a way that we can be praying for you. I would love if you would share a story of what God is doing in your own life and heart. The thing that I'm most concerned about that's on that connection card is the the checkbox on there that says, I want to become a follower of Jesus. I'm going to talk to two people very briefly. If you don't know Jesus, I want you to look at that box and I just want you to think. I have two choices. I can accept or I can reject. And it's your decision to make. All I would say is, you will never make a more important decision in your life. It affects everything. And for those of you who know Jesus, I want you to think for a moment, what am I going to do about that? If Jesus is who I say he is, if Jesus is who he says he is, and someone were to look at my life, would anybody know? that I believe that to be true? Is he the foundation of my life? Is he the cornerstone? Do I live in an expectancy that Christ will return and I live my life every day waking up thinking it could be today? And when I stand before God, I want to have something to say for myself. (laughs) How are you living for Jesus? And in this time of year, let's have some joy in the fact that God would send his son to take our place. 
How amazing is that? That is unbelievable news. We have an opportunity now to respond in worship. And I would just say, worship like you mean it. Worship out of joy for what God has done at Christmas. This is a cool thing. And God has invited us in to his family. Would you pray with me? Father God, we are so grateful to you. You are an amazing God. And I just pray this morning that even as we sing to you this morning, Lord, that you would hear our gratitude. Lord, I pray that we would make a decision about what we will do with you and that we will live in expectation of a great God who's returning for those he loves. We pray this in your name. Amen.